everybody, and welcome back for another episode of Mangum Reads. We have, with some regret, abandoned our short story run and decided to get back into the groove of full-length tales. To do so, though, we decided to start with The Water Dancer by, and I'm turning to Sarah to pronounce the author's name, Ta-Nehisi Coates. You know, I wrote that down three times. I even did the whole spacing out of how you pronounce the, the uh, syllables thing. I'm still so glad you were here. I like you turning to me for that because I feel like the uh, woman in the uh, voicemail recording. <laughs> well, yeah, a bit of that, sure. <laughs> but we have turned to this. Uh, I would say he's mostly mostly famous for being an essayist. I mean, previously worked as a journalist for the uh, Atlantic. I think he recently left. Still does a lot of published essays with a, large, a lot of major newspapers and magazines. But this is his first novel, The Water Dancer. And we've decided to dive in. I was going to say, I think he's sort of fairly well recognized at this point as a novelist. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is his first fiction novel, I know that much. Has he, has he written um, nonfiction before? Um, I'm not sure. I know him because a few years ago he, he sort of rose to prominence, at least in, in sort of my circles, for his collection of essays called the Be- uh, Between the World and Me. Hmm. Um, which um, yeah, was so... like a very well read generally, but also very well read in sort of um, circles of academia that are dealing with like critical race theory and and things of that nature. Uh, yeah, so he uh, wrote a memoir about uh, coming of age in West Baltimore, mm-hmm. um, which is an interesting uh, upbringing. Uh, I, I'm somewhat familiar with West Baltimore. <laughs> um, he also wrote. What for... direction of Baltimore are you from, BJ? Uh, I'm. Essentially outside the city, northwest, okay. but uh, I I worked in like the center of Baltimore, and I'm sort of familiar with East and West Baltimore to various extents. Gotcha. Having watched um, The Wire, I am familiar in the sense that that show allowed me to be. And and then he had um, a he wrote for Black Panther for a while mm-hmm. for Marvel comic. For me, the first I ever became familiar with him was you wrote an essay for the Atlantic. My president was black. Uh, shortly after Obama left office and Trump was coming in, which mm-hmm. was remarkably well-written and really interesting in terms of the analysis of looking back on the presidency. Um, but that was back in, like, 2017 now. That's kind of the first moment I was aware of him. But mm-hmm. we are diving into his first fiction novel. But before we do so, a drink, I feel, is necessary to get into the groove of things. And for that, we turn to Sarah. Yes, um... Which I am very excited about. I, I had a hard time kind of coming up with a drink for this book, partially because like we are going to be dealing with very heavy subject matter as we as we discuss this novel, as we have before, but it like feels um, particularly present. And so figuring out a drink from for this was that didn't feel a little like overly blase was difficult. Um, and then I decided that I'm pairing a cocktail with a book so it can be whatever it wants to be. Um, so that's where I'm coming at this from. But mm-hmm. um, I have created a cocktail called, well, I've recreated a cocktail called the Natchez Trace cocktail, um, which we will talk a lot about uh, going Natchez way over the course of this book. And um, it's interesting to me because I lived for a while in Tennessee and uh, Natchez mean it has a kind of capacious meaning in the course of this book but it is at least in my knowledge very specific to Tennessee um and I I lived next to a lot of like Natchez traces and Natchez pathways and all of that um so that might happen in in more locations but like 
this is a, at least a word I'm familiar with. Um, but this cocktail is, um, it's, it is in a lot of ways very similar to a Sazerac. It kind of does the same process. And so it is bourbon based. It's about two parts bourbon to one-ish parts simple syrup. Um, and that is stirred and then strained into a glass that has been rinsed with. It is supposed to have been rinsed with something that I've forgotten the name of, but it's kind of like a, a cherry flavored sweet wine, which I couldn't mm. find anywhere. Um, so I went back to the Sazerac roots and rinsed the glass with absinthe. Hmm. Um, gotcha. I was going to say you didn't didn't make it North Carolina through and through and rinse it with cheer wine. <laughs> I could have rinsed it with cheer wine, I suppose, or apple brandy if I were going the North Carolina route. Um, this drink was screaming so antebellum until you threw absinthe into the midst, midst of things. Well, you know, there are parts of the South, Spencer, that really take the French as their roots. There is a part of the South. This is true. <laughs> um, um, I was going to say, it's interesting that you went that direction because I... I looked it up and because I was vaguely familiar with the name, mm-hmm. and it's a city in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Which I oh, not actually, just Mississippi. Which yeah. I mm. I actually know quite well because of that whole Viking project. It's one of the st- places oh, that the Viking Riverboat is stopping it. So we had that we had a lot of negotiations with the city. Makes perfect sense and is probably what that's actually referring to. I just the reason that I put it together with Tennessee it's is the that Nachos in the, Trace Parkway. Or the Nachos Trace, Trace Parkway, yes. And in the, um, and maybe you can tell me if this happens in Nachos, Mississippi as well, but in the recipe that I based this cocktail off of, um, they wanted you to use Bellmead bourbon. And hmm. Bellmead is, um, well, it has, it at least in my experience, has deep roots to uh, sort of upper class Nashville. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it. Natchez is an impressive city if you haven't looked at it in terms of like Google Maps or whatever else. It's on its own kind of like plateau that it towers over the river nearby. And it is, you can just picture it being almost like the stereotypical riverboat city in terms of what mm-hmm. was probably going by there back in the day. It's deep south. You can imagine it was probably very heavy in the slave trade and how it fits perfectly in terms of the context of the story. But it has a hell of a lot of heritage for people who are into that kind of antebellum kind of tour, if you want to go on that. It's a lot of pl- there's a lot of, you know, semi-active plantations that are still running around it kind of thing. Interesting. Um, I will say the last thing on this cocktail is that is it is garnished, and this makes me very happy, with bourbon-soaked cherries, <laughs> which I do have, and I have garnished it with, and they are delightful. Um, so all in all, I really, I love this cocktail. It is, it is really just sweetened bourbon <laughs> more than anything, uh, with the absence of absinthe that has that kind of fennel um aniseed mm-hmm. note to it just on the nose because the the glass is, is rinsed with it i would imagine that the same thing would happen if you were actually rinsing the glass with um and i meant to look up what this actually was but if you were if you were rinsing it with the uh the sort of cherry based wine um and then the cherries as a garnish, add a little bit more sweetness, but also a little bit of that kind of tart fruit flavor. And I, I really love it. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you enjoyed this one. And just to complete the various little bits of odd history that we're bringing up, which is so much fun. I'm enjoying we're doing this. Um, hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Natchez, the Natchez Trail goes from like Nashville to, I think, Natchez. And it's long. It's like over 400 miles. That would, that would be probably fair. I was living in... 
I was living in Nashville when I did, was not paying attention to such things, but I was cycling a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And the Natchez Trace and the Natchez Pathway was like a a, a very well-known and re- well-traveled cycling trail. And you could go on like multi-day trips yeah. going and, along those roadways. And historically, it was before really the Mississippi became like the lifeblood of the central United States. Um, and we're still developing that way. It was the, like the predominant trade route for hundreds of years. If you were <laughs> going over mountain Appalachians, that was the way you then went farther south down into Mississippi and then from there into Louisiana. So... It was an incredibly important trade route. You can understand why in the book the phrase Natchez Way is so immediately recognizable to all the characters because from their perspective, that's the way that goods are moving across from the east to the west of the United States. Hmm. But for our story arts itself, we're doing a bit of an interesting structure this time in the sense that um, we are going to be addressing the first third, which helpfully in this book is divided by Roman numerals. Always makes that easier. And at least for me, I've not read any farther than the first third. BJ, I don't think you're done either for the book. Sarah, you know, uh, overachiever that you are, you finished it probably. I think you've literally finished it twice. I finished it once. You I started. You it read twice. it and you did the audiobook. You have finished it twice. No, I I, I only read part of part of it. Um, okay. And then I fin- I finished it with the audiobook. <laughs> BJ, how far are you into it so far? Um, a bit. I think I'm about sixty percent through. Okay. Um, which, and we talked a little bit about this off pod, but. I find fascinating because I'm really enjoying the book and I like pretty much everything about it. Um, but I'm not just flying through it. Mm-hmm. And this isn't like, I'm not f- particularly frustrated by anything. Um, I'm not, you know, there, there aren't really stumbling blocks in, in terms of other writing that, you know, we've discussed on pod and, and books that I've, you know, just had trouble getting through and and i don't want to pick back up like this i want to pick back up and continue reading but like i'm not just devouring it it's it's a little bit more i want to cogitate and and process it i guess a little bit more than say um fellowship of the ring sarah you mentioned that now that you've you know been exposed to two different formats of this book you found the flow of the audiobook significantly better and more enjoyable than you found reading it right yeah, I mean, I was certainly enjoying, um, I was enjoying reading it, and I, but I think that I was having um, the same, not necessarily problems, but I was having the same experience that you were, BJ, in that it was a very slow read for me. And I think in some ways mm-hmm. it was probably probably meant to be, um, to to kind of have you pondering over it and cogitating over it and, and all of that. But it uh, was not particularly useful when we had to get it read for this podcast. Um, yeah. And so I sort of, of necessity, of the sort of vagaries of what was available in my library app, I picked up the the audiobook and read it or listened to it over the course of maybe about a weekend. Like it was a it was a pretty fast listen. Um, partially because I was working on other projects and, and doing some kind mm-hmm. of sewing things and things like that, which are like very amenable to listening to audiobooks. And not only was it a fast listen in that I kept wanting to listen to more of it, but it was, you know, I think that audiobooks have been getting better and better quality as, as we have been moving to audible and and things that are not the rent the um 
rent the cassette tapes from the Cracker Barrel. <laughs> For the long drive across states. Yeah. Um, but this was a this particular audiobook was not just like good; it was a special experience. And so the reader, um, whose name is is Joe Morton, and I don't know anything about him or if he does other things or what is going on there. Although I am, uh, now I'm looking through his Amazon listings. He has read Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, uh, which certainly hmm. makes sense. But he has also read, well, he's also read Ralph Ellison's Juneteenth novel. And we are recording this on Juneteenth. Um, but he has done a whole bunch of other things, including um, so, uh, a Louis L'Amour book, which is very interesting. But uh, his reading style was very special, I think, in this book and very well paired with this book. Um, we deal with a lot of characters over the course of this novel, and he did an exceptional job of differentiating them through voice and tone. And when we are mostly in the narrator's head throughout the novel, I found that his reading of the narrator narrator was very believable and very compelling. Mm-hmm. Well, I very much agree with what you guys have thought about this book, where I've found it a bit of a slow pace to go through, not because it's a slog. I particularly enjoyed the world that's being painted by this novel so far, but the writing style almost it reminds me of times of being more nonfiction than traditional fiction, particularly with mm-hmm. respect to the flow which gives it an air of authenticity and a lived memory kind of thing, but it makes it difficult to just devour. It makes it difficult to consume rapidly or even in the way like an epic narrative or pretty much a lot of fiction is built off the idea of an epic narrative in terms of how it flows and how it builds. This isn't. It's not structured that same way. And it wouldn't ex- I wouldn't exactly call it plotting, but it works at a pace that doesn't want you that doesn't want to be hurried and doesn't really mm-hmm. allow you to hurry it and that's fine but it requires a mental change up to process given that i viewed this as a novel when i went into it i think that's a yeah. really good a really good point spencer is that this this is a book and i think that tanahesi coates is doing this very deliberately it it doesn't feel like it's um, ineptly plotted or anything like that. It, it it feels like it is meant to be read slowly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think in part that even just fits the experience that the characters are going through. That yes. we cover a remarkable amount of time in the first third of this book. We cover at least what would you say, t- 10, 12 years of this guy's life in terms of our main yeah. character, mm-hmm. in a way that you can almost just feel the, the, the institutional boredom that works into something at times. <laughs> that, that this is a man that is bound to a role in life, that is bound to a physical place, and he is enduring 12 years of living the exact same day over and over again with a hope of a better future eventually established that, you know, even I can see a third in is rapidly proving to be a fool's hope. Yeah. But I feel like if we're going we're gonna to introduce ourselves to this first third of this book, we have to kind of start with our main character, given that he is our perspective into all of this Mm -hmm. and for as much as i'm saying i'm enjoying this i would say i think i find the main character the i wouldn't say it's the least enjoyable but maybe the most boring part of the book in the sense that he comes across as the most tropey to me of the other elements of the story of where i I wouldn't say he necessarily comes across as the stereotypical fantasy protagonist but he has a few of the hallmarks of it particularly the i think the most common superpower you ever see in in male protagonists in these in, in these kind of books he has an exceptionally good memory and never forgets anything. Yeah, which I've seen in like memory is a... 35 different books. 
Oh, that's interesting. As someone who is not as well versed in fantasy, I had not. I have seen this before, yes, um, but it did not necessarily strike me in exactly that way. And partially, I think because, and I can't remember if it really happens in the first third of this book or if he kind of gets to it later. But he is very clear in saying, like, yes, I have this exceptional memory, but it mm-hmm. gives me no wisdom. No, in part because he's not, yeah, in part because he's a young man who has a particular trait. He is, you know, a um, a savant in a certain way. He is a prodigy, probably a better mm-hmm. way of putting it. And he is specialized as a result of that and prides himself with respect to that. And it, as we see, as he openly admits, it leads him on a few very dangerous and self-destructive paths over the course of this story. At least mm-hmm. one of which we see definitely played out before the first third of this book is done. But I would say the other side of that for me, which I, for whatever reason, is kind of funny, is I've been uh, listening to uh, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo trilogy. Oh my god! I about. just finished listening to the first book of that. Bj, we have to talk about this <laughs> off pod. <laughs> um, and so the it's funny that like there are sort of two main characters that have eidetic memory and how like. Complete, like completely different books in so many ways. Otherwise, but mm-hmm. um, it's an it's a very common trope in literature because it allow it's a way of justifying your main character being verging on superhuman in terms of abilities in a way that you kind of need to for a plot standpoint. That yeah, to not have a weird disembodied third person narrator that just knows things but isn't part of the story it also avoids the need to have the repetition that actually makes life necessary that if you have somebody that can just be naturally exposed to something and then remember it you don't have to continually backtrack for the reader or have them continue to repeat the same event or even gloss over the fact that they're repeating they've experienced Mm -hmm. it in real time the same way the reader can and they can accept it and process it in the same way the reader now can just due to this unique trait you've assigned yeah yeah it, it makes sense from a literary standpoint, but it is common. But for our main character, he... But the, hmm? I, I think that, that I, I think I appreciate the flatness more than maybe... I don't know if it's more than you did, but I appreciated that, that sense of flatness because like the main character has this ability and then is one dim- or two-dimensionalized by everybody around him mm-hmm. yeah. because he has this. And because that is an aspect of his personality, like nothing else gets to shine through. Well, and there is there is one other aspect of his background that I think also to other characters um, sort of makes him a particular thing in the world. Yeah, he's his mother's son. Well, mm-hmm. he's his mother's son, but he's also his father's son. Right, that's So true. maybe there are two other things, right? Yeah, I, well, there are a couple... So. It's like everybody in his life mm-hmm. views him by something, by some very flat descriptors because his father is the owner of the, the plantation. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so let's, and let's back up and do, do just these, yes. these, like, this whole sketch, right? <laughs> is yeah. that Hiram is, um, at the, at the, well, at the very beginning of the story, he's a young man, but mm-hmm. shortly after that, he is a young boy who um, is... Born in the- Born in the Antebellum South. Born in the Antebellum South in Virginia. A a, a version of Virginia, of where I I looked up, as far as I can tell, most of these cities don't exist. Natchez does, we've discussed that. Mm -hmm. But this seems to be um, some cities that are non-existent, but very much situated in like the east, maybe even the Chesapeake part of Virginia. 
Yeah, it's a sort of mythic old Virginia, I would say. Yes. Right? Um, because he is he he is the son of his, his mother, who is a slave woman, and his father, who is the master of the plantation. Um, Lock, lockless, if I got that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And in the town of Sweetwater, I think, right? Uh, there's a few towns to mention here. There's a town of Starfall, which is nearby. Oh, Starfall, that's it. I'm sorry. Um, and he... <laughs> uh, the, that is that is kind of his his parentage, but I think it's important to note at the outset that the the kind of mythic Virginia that we're in is at the end of the apex of Virginia as a tobacco growing region as a slave owning region. Um, the prospects are out west, mm-hmm. are in Tennessee and Kentucky and and Mississippi. Right, we're in a, we're in a period. It's difficult necessarily to assign this an era because it's not trying to be. It's very much mm-hmm. focused on the concept of an antebellum South yes. rather than a literal period in time. And I think it's yes. better off doing it that way. But it's very much in the transition from the East to, from the Old South to the Deep South in terms of mm-hmm. what, where the wealth, where of the power, where the tradition of slavery is moving. And that does have a historical basis. The Chesapeake got very mined out in terms of them just abusing the soil there and everybody moved west, even just to Western Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are very much at that point of where these very traditional, well-developed landowning families are watching their heritage collapse before them. And that's embodied in them selling their slaves of where these are their most valuable asset they now have, not their land, not anything that their ancestors built, but the human <laughs> representation of it that they still possess but are now Even rapidly capital, yeah. now rapidly sending down Natchez way as the rest of their power and wealth fades into the mist from their own I guess lack uh, their own their own poor management and lack of foresight well that was also a weird thing to me because it seemed like a lot of these families there were parts of the family that have moved west mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but like they were separate and non-supportive and like they were selling slaves and it, it was just like kind of the collapse of part of the family and, and the uh, rise of another and they're not being some sort of link. They're not being some sort of sense of community among this sort of, I would say, semi-nebulous like white slave-owning population. I and I think, think that's very true to form. Yeah, I think it's very true to form and I think it reflects particularly in... Um, Hiram, our main character's father, uh, mm-hmm. is Hiram, right? I know they do mostly just call him High over the course yeah. of the story. Yeah, no, Hiram is his, is his full name. Um, but the pride that goes into what his dad represents, um, the just pride that is built solely along, along heritage rather than anything he's actually accomplished in his own life, is informing a lot of his decision making. That, as you've said, BJ, a lot of the, a lot of the various you know extended roots of this family have already gone west. They've already gone Natchez, down Natchez Way as have a lot of the other people that were in a position of wealth and power, at least, you know, situated around slavery and agricultural cash crops. But for people like Hiram's dad, who are so tied into the heritage of their family, and that's how they build their identity, it would be like cutting off your own arms. He has no, he cannot mentally conceive of leaving what his ancestors built behind and starting afresh, because he has no way of, no way of functioning outside of what the legacy of his ancestors. He's never had to do anything other than live in that shadow. Um, so yeah, those that are able to survive and get beyond that have gone off elsewhere. Those like, you know, 
The caretakers of the Lockless estate, on the other hand, are content to just slowly fade away with vague hopes for what the next generation will be able to accomplish beyond what they were able to. Mm-hmm. Um, for how the story is presented, it by chapter two onward tells a pretty coherent narrative. I'm curious what you guys thought of chapter one, of where I found chapter one, I wouldn't say necessarily off-putting, but I wasn't sure how to take it, and I almost got a, a lot of... Uh, um, catalog of Storms vibes in terms of the uh, ri- almost poetic writing style that was apparent there without a clear context assigned to it. Yeah, it was very much a kind of like um, you were certainly dropped in the action in a, a weird and sort of magical realist sort of way, although I think mm. that we might talk about how how fantasy and or magical realism are functioning in this story at a later point, but you yeah. you start from that point. Right. Right. Um, you start from the idea that something weird and supernatural is going on. Right. You, you, um, and mm-hmm. I was going to say, and to your point, Spencer, like we're introduced to words that that mm-hmm. aren't defined, which is something that I really dislike in short stories, <laughs> and I usually like it. It takes a while in a book to for me to come to a decision. And, like, I, I very much sort of agree with your frustration where it's just, like, it's hard to know what's going on because there are things in here that, that are clearly sort of meant to be opaque. Mm-hmm. And so let's, can we can we kind of list what those words or concepts are that we get from the first chapter? Let me go uh, going back. Yeah. Um, so one of them is conduction. Yeah, conduction yeah. is, I think, the big one, right? Because we get introduced also to the concept of water dancing, which seems to take on a different valence here, but is like, mm-hmm. at least to, to me, it's a, a little bit of a known entity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at least somewhat associated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think has has a some cultural touchstone that we are familiar with. Yeah, whereas the, conduction... Like this is a, the water dancing is a thing that happened and happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but its connection to conduction and then what conduction is very unclear. Are there other things that we don't know about immediately in the first chapter? Well, we get a host of characters that at this point we don't really know what to make of. Sure. I mean, we, we we're practically not introduced to the main character really in this chapter to the point that reading this chapter and it took me even a while going into the second chapter, I assumed the main character was female and I don't know why. Interesting. Okay. Because I've, I've been given no other context and almost the motherly role that was assigned towards what was identified as main character's brother, Maynard. Um, we get introduced to the goose, but at present, it's really just a river and it becomes more later. Uh, it's still just a river, but it seems to represent more as the story goes on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get introduced to the importance of dancing in a way that we don't necessarily get yet. We get a lot of also just various words that I probably should have Googled, like Juba, or various other things that I wrote down as being for a later note. Um, and as you said, sir, the biggest thing that I think is the change-up for this chapter, in a way that makes it so stand out compared to any point we've really reached until much later on in, in this book, is the magical, magical bleeding into the world. Because the rest of these chapters are very much feet in the earth, grounded in reality, it seems, for a while. This suggestions and hints that maybe not so much. But this first chapter is straight up fantasy at times. Yeah, and in reading it, like, I sort of knew at least the broad subject of what we were going to be reading, and then I got what seemed like a fantastical chapter, but again, it's sort of in this sort of nebulous, it's unclear if this is fantasy, Mm -hmm. magical realism, 
or uh, literary uh, leeway in, in how one describes events. And, you know, it did, did, this was the first chapter was really difficult and interesting in terms of how you classified this book. And then you get into the, the part that we're going to talk about today, which is really like a Buildings Were Men. Um, and so the, the book as a whole, I would be interested in, maybe we want to talk about it later, but I do, to me, this seems like historical fiction with an element of magical realism in it. Yeah. I mean, so far, I'm a third in, and mm -hmm. I'm getting hints there's more magical realism coming. And I've mm -hmm. seen a little bit to suggest the world is not as it seems. But at present, the book reads like the, I'm, somebody wrote 12 Years a Slave, and then an entirely different author wrote the intro chapter without necessarily having context on what the rest of the story was going to be. Mm -hmm. It's that distinct. And I'm waiting for the shoe to drop, for the two of them to blend more together. And I'm assuming it's basically happening, given that I've now seen the same event told by two very different narrators in terms of the style of which they're written. But how they perfectly fit together, it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I can't answer the second question, but I do. I can tell you that it, it, that they do become sort of combined in some way, yeah. shape, or form that I find compelling. Um, it, it, my guess is that that combination is going to be through our main character and mm -hmm. through a certain degree of abilities which are already being hinted at in the story that he doesn't have full understanding of, but... this will understand them when he has understand <laughs> yes. them, hopefully. We follow the story through him. We are chained to him and his perspective, and we learn more as he does. And it's strongly suggestive that, this, that what is supernatural in the story may be very much in him, and how that will eventually allow him to express himself in the world. But. So do we want to talk about this plot sort of purely um, sort of temporally and linearly and skip the first chapter for the first part of our discussion? Yeah. I think we yeah, could I th come I back think... to it. Okay. But lighter. Yeah. yeah I think Let's we should come do back the to buildings it. we well, given we... it's due. Yes. Uh, and I think we can do a lot of the plot of this pretty broad brush. I mean, mm -hmm. 120 pages of this, I feel like not necessarily much plot happened, and that that, to a certain degree, is intentional in terms of reflecting what the life would be like. Yes, but, and it's also a very knowable plot if you read any sort of yeah. slave narratives or um, historical fiction, anything of that ilk dealing with this time period. Like, yeah. this, is, this is a known story. Yes, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say the story is tropey, but it is. No. Go it's setting and its basis and the, t the story that it's setting up are walking on well-tread ground to do its own thing. Mm -hmm. It's a it's it's a comfortable groove to fall into in terms of experiencing it. Um, yeah, and I think at least here, it's not the plot that matters. Mm -hmm. And so, so to take a well-worn story allows for a development of relationships. Mm -hmm. which I think mm -hmm. is really what the first third of the book essentially is, um, really defining the relationships within the slave community, mm -hmm. the slave community to the plantation, and sort of where everybody sort of fits in this uh, Virginia society. Mm -hmm. it, it's fun you describe as relationships too, because I often, I so often view that term as just implying relationships between two individuals, just purely interpersonal relationships. But I think it's a very accurate term, for, like you said, describing the interrelationships between the different aspects of society. 
which I find fascinating. I think that's my favorite part of this book is the various ways society interacts and the various perspectives our main character gives us on how that society works and doesn't work. That yeah, we're in a real sort of so like ecosystem and environment here yeah. that is very particular to the time period that we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. But broad plot, uh, mm-hmm. our, main char- our main character, is, as we said, is mixed. He's, a, he's colored by the definitions of the time. Uh, he was born very much in the slave society down in the town. Um, and that's how he spends the first years of his life, being raised by a neighboring, old, neighboring very bitter old woman who's probably the closest actual relationship we see between two people in the book is the relationship that he shares with her, despite the fact that she, at least on the surface, acts as if she hates him at times. And I wish I remembered what her name was, but I've already warned you guys I'm horrible with names in this book so far. Um, anyone remember what his name of his caretaker is? Um, I do not. I'm terrible with... I'm actively scrolling <laughs> through, searching, right? Searching, searching. <laughs> okay, while you guys search. Um, um, it, it, oh, is, hold on. Well, don't hold on. I think I've got it, but give me a second. Uh, yeah. I think, so I, so I would say, Athena, like, the very... Athena. Athena. It's Athena. Athena. Thank you. Um, but, I would say very early on, we have, like, we get the sense that he had some sort of relationship with his mother that he doesn't mm-hmm. really remember, and she died, yes. and so this... Or is gone in some way, yes. Yeah. She's definitely gone, absent. Like, absent. Um, but... This is sort of the tenuous and uh, thread that we have to water dancing as well as conduction and that sort of being something that he lost with the loss of his mother. Yes. And and it's something a lot Uh, of characters point out, too, that this is your family legacy. It's one of the things both your mother and your aunt were famous for. This is a legacy of our people. And you, at every opportunity, say you don't share that. It's pretty much his default response to whenever anybody brings it up is that, nope, that's not me. Yeah, and so, like, water dancing, my understanding of water dancing, like, as a historical thing in the world, is um, a particular type of dance that happened particularly in slave communities because it has African roots, um, of having some sort of water jug on your head and dancing um, at celebrations with that water jug on your head, right? (laughs) Mm-hmm. I think we even get that in one moment in the story, where we yes. kind of see a water dance occur yep. between him and Sophia, or Sophie? I can't. Yeah, Sophia, yeah. Na- names are hard. Um, um, but it takes on, from the very beginning of this story, it takes on slightly different and deeper valences than right. mm-hmm. just the act of dancing. Right. There, there is, we, are, we are dancing at a party versus what seemingly is described associated with his mom and his aunt that, no, this is a kind of religious experience. This is mm-hmm. a very much cultural connection kind of moment that is a, very much of a shame that you don't really connect with. Instead, for most of the story, and it's set up very early on, he sets himself on kind of his own self, self-set hero's journey of, I'm going to be my father's heir. Yes. He, he even has the lodestone yeah. in the form of that coin that his father flipped him, which um, he keeps in his pocket at all times and rubs as part of, you know, remem- remembering who he is and who he wishes to be and what his goals associated with that shall be as he tries to impose his will upon them to bring it about, which... Yep. He's remarkably bef- able to do, at he thinks he is, because of the unique abilities we've already described he has. Mm-hmm. And before I, we go too far away, I, I wanted to talk about then a little bit more, Arthena. Um, and basically, she is sort of the... Another novel would have centered on her, and this would have been sort of the end of her story. Mm-hmm. Um, she's sort of been as, about as 
gone through the ringer, uh, to say the least. She's lost her husband uh, to sickness and her children to... Her children um, have been sold notches, right? Sold down yeah. right. And so, like, there's clear reason that she's bitter. Mm-hmm. But, and, and so, but she does obviously care very deeply for, for Hiram and takes care of him in a way that... Um, others might not. Mm-hmm. No, she is thing. very much a surrogate mother. Mm-hmm. It's a key thing to note here that she is bitter, and she's well known to the community as bitter and snappy and not to be pleasant to be around. But as the story goes on, it's apparent that it's not necessarily that she's unique in that regard. She's just profoundly more honest than a lot of people around yes. her. Yes. That this is a state of being that everyone is suffering from in their own way. They're slaves in a highly oppressive society where everybody's just kind of waiting for the next shoe to drop for a new disaster to happen. And she's endured some of the worst of that. She's endured a hell of a lot of pain. And she doesn't feel it is a bl- that she is obliged or necessary to hide that. That she is going to reflect the pains of the world back upon it rather than just simply bury it deep for everyone else's pleasure. And... Yeah, she, I, I like I, I find her one of the more interesting characters so far. Mm-hmm. That she could have been very much just set up as a a brief caretaker, maybe even a fallen mentor on a hero's journey kind of you know setting. But she isn't. She isn't. Doesn't seem to be she's setting up that way. She is her own character rather than a prop in his story, and she's better off for it. And that well, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> well. As a well, as, as, as a character a to read, character in a novel. Yes, yes. as a char- as a character, as a sort of person in the world. Maybe still a little unclear because Hiram, uh, he is known to his his father as his son, but he also catches his eye as his son. Uh, from again demonstrating his very his incredible skill at memory, I think he's he's basically forming a certain degree of mimicry from every other person around him and singing various songs or verses, all from rote, all from memory for dozens of people yes. around him, and that impresses his yep. dad, who throws him a coin and in basic, basically brings him up to the estate. He's out and of the field. And comes with him. Yes, he needs a caretaker. He's still a young yes. he's still a young man. Yes. And this is a visual that I would is very well done in terms of how the estate works. Mm. Of where there's this delightful antebellum mansion. It's got years of history dating back to, you know, Thomas Jefferson and before kind of thing in terms of the history of Virginia. And it's kind of built into the side of a hill. And in that underground, in this hollowed-out warren inside the earth, is the apparatus that runs this home, where all the slaves are. I think they even call it the warren or something like that, They don't call they? it the warrens, yeah. Um, and they enter through the back, they enter into the dark, they go into the bowels of the earth as part of becoming the, uh, the gears the that make the machinery of the house, yeah. Yeah, the, the gears that run this home. And it's such an interesting way of describing it and depicting it in a way that feels very real, uh, whether it's describing a real home or not, it feels real in terms of how it's described. Um, and he enters into that world as kind of being between the, even that world and the home, though, of where it's really become apparent that his father has a purpose for him. He hasn't just brought him up the state, it's just kind of like a lark. He has an end goal for what he sees this person, and he starts a very about specific it, task for him. He starts about it very early, that I've seen you as brilliant, I'm going to test you in that regard, and if it proves true and you prove trainable, I have a life goal for you. Well, and this is, and we we even get a hint of this a little bit earlier with Dina, who, when he is going up to the house, 
warns him they are not mm-hmm. your family. Nope. Right. They're not your family. They're not bringing you in to be part of the family. They're not bringing you in to accord any uh, better st- station per se. No. Mm-hmm. Or status, but it, but it is it it will look like that. But Hiram is very much in his sort of like preteen. How old do you think he is when he goes up there? Like twelve, maybe. Yeah, somewhere between eleven yeah. and thirteen. I mean, like yeah, very much in that sort of middle the middle school years, one might say. What does yeah. worth? He's a pompous little shit at the start. Yeah, of the yeah, because he goes up saying, "Well, no, but I am going to be the heir. Like this is my." Mm-hmm. Um, this is my inheritance. My blood which right. is 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 complicated not only by the system of slavery. <laughs> there are laws, which is sir. A uh, yeah, a, a very high bar to cross, uh, mm-hmm. an uncrossable bar. But also by the fact that that um, his father has a quote unquote legitimate heir. He has a son mm-hmm. by his wife, Maynard. I, I, is a, yep. a, a key part of the story is very much deceased wife who is a, never in a, a character in the story as yes. much as her legacy yes. may hang over yes. this. Um, um, but Maynard uh, is there and is is kind of a peer of well is a, is is an age mate of yeah. yes. Hiram. May, may, maybe About like the same a, age, but maybe like a couple years older. Uh, maybe got the context of, but yeah, but still not, within not, the same zone. They're, they're within the, maybe three years of each other. Yeah, yeah, and I think three years would be maybe the outside. Yeah, because mm-hmm. um, it really close. feels like they're of an age, um, which makes them, you know, sort of have similar expectations in certain ways, and then completely different expectations in other ways mm-hmm. in the eyes of their of their father. Mm-hmm. Um, and as uh, Hiram begins to sort of come into uh the the main house and sort of take on some education and some duties in the house he excels basically where maynard is a complete failure yeah i mean hiram is told essentially he doesn't seem to have in the beginning of his service in the house he doesn't seem to have like specific duties he is more or less told to make himself useful right Mm -hmm. and that's, that's not the reason he's here no you he wasn't brought here to be a slave necessarily. He was brought here to be trained up to be a aide de camp manservant at all times to the heir apparent of the, of the household. Yeah. Well, a slave, but a different, a ver- like a, a, a very non- different category. A very, a very slave. particular type of house slave. Right. Right. He, he is um, meant to be a. He used to be meant to almost be like a classical slave of where I've brought in a I've brought in a uh, a Greek from the a well-educated Greek from the Greek world to serve in our home and ensure that he's the one that actually knows everything and does all the work while I get all the credit. Yeah, right. Um, uh, but but in the in the course of sort of making himself useful, um, his father. What is his father's name? Can anyone remind me? Is it Horace or something like that? Uh, it is Howell. 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 That's right. right. Um, Howell throws a party for this sort of old set, and it's it's such a fascinating party because it is it, almost like the last hurrah of the Virginia gentry mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. as they try to reassert or reclaim their claim on, on sort of like Southern nobility. Um, but this is at the point when, when Hiram is still just kind of doing stuff around 
I was like, he's not doing he's anything, there. really. He's just kind of hanging uh, out. He's he's with the kitchen staff a lot. He's doing whatever mm-hmm. it can to, he can to make himself useful. Uh, but these parties are like a real burden on the house staff. And everyone mm-hmm. is yeah. required to be in attendance. Oh, Everyone's required to be in attendance. There is an incredible amount of food produced. Every Everybody invited needs to be taken care of like individually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and... It and there's just all of the prep and cleanup that goes into it, mm-hmm. um, and it's like days of preparation and like days of cleanup. Yes, right. this is one of our first insights we get into the debauchery that is being described as part of slave owning society, and also that's the kind of corruption that is causing it to rot at its core to the degree it ever it wasn't there originally. Yeah, um, and I think those two things together are particularly important for understanding kind of what happens and what could have happened at this mm-hmm. party. Yeah, this yeah. this was a moment of where if someone was if Hiram did not step in, uh, someone could have died. Yes, this was kind of what was setting up. This is that once the party starts to die down, the decorum that they're representing on the surface fades away. And we see the just rotted pit that isn't inside these people's souls um, once the alcohol allows things to fall freely, unless, you know, once they no longer feel the need to maintain the pretenses. And so one of these, you know, bells of the ball basically just starts asking for, I'm trying to remember what happens. She basically just kind of like asks for someone to throw her a game to entertain her in a way that you can almost tell that if you displease her in this regard, you'll be sent down Natchez way at best at the end of the night. I, I think my understanding, and I don't remember exactly what the wording was, but she is asking for entertainment. And yes. to me, it is clear that if that, that entertainment might and possibly should include some sort of like physical abuse of Yeah. I was thinking either gladiatorial yeah. or, or just more of like a more sadistic i i think and, that's where it goes yeah and at a minimum public humiliation at yes. a minimum someone is going to be put on stage as a dancing bear and that would probably in no way be enough to satisfy her because mm-hmm. she there's a certain degree of bloodlust that is wrapped up in her even if it won't necessarily express in that express in that way yeah and but at anyway. this moment she is sort of like embodying this class right yes she's embo- she's embodying the roots of this class She's embodying the soul of this class in a way they seem to spend all of their lives trying to not acknowledge. Um, but instead, Hiram intervenes to the relief of all staff present and proceeds to demonstrate his prodigious memory through card games, through memory games, through even you know reworking stories to tell a coherent narrative together of all the guests that are present mm-hmm. in a way that they are all floored by, impressed by. Even his new tutor is caught off guard by this. The... Um, Consistently described as the one northerner who's present in a given scene, the one tutor. Well, he doesn't know that he's his new tutor at this point. Well, he's met he's met with uh, he's met with Maynard's tutor once or twice at this point. It will be his new tutor after this after this mm-hmm. evening because the party ends on very pleasant terms. Everyone's amused at this new slave boy who's so entertaining, and his father is reaffirmed in what his initial thoughts about what Hiram would be capable of. And this, I think that to me, this was like, it was in some ways a turning point, but it also really solidified what Hiram saw in his abilities and his role in the house Mm -hmm. and what everybody else saw. Yes. This is Hiram. This is Hiram doing almost like a profound game of marketing 
of where this is Hiram wanting to be noticed. This is Hiram mm -hmm. wanting to show off what his abilities are because he s believes that if he does that, if he demonstrates to them what I'm intellectually capable of, they will recognize my abilities as they should and give me my rewards as I am due. This well, profoundly not... reflecting his you know, immaturity in that regard. Yeah, and it's not they, it's, it's him. He. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There, there is a um, lot of daddy issues that are at play here to start mm -hmm. the story. And basically, you sort of see from everybody else's perspective that your uh, description of, of wanting to see a dancing bear is, this is essentially what that is mm -hmm. to them. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. And he just, given that it's him that's doing it in an intellectual way, he doesn't view himself in that light. But all the rest of the room very much does, with the possible exception of his father. And the possible yeah. and exception of the tutor. Yeah, right. though I don't know Those enough about two. him to say what he is yet. You'll find out more. Um, <laughs> sure. But um, the other thing that you, that you said is that he's a savant, I think is also very um, apparent to sort of everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're honest about the fact that he's remarkably intelligent. They just don't view him in the... It's, it's interesting. They review him as remarkably intelligent, remarkably capable, but they don't view it in a human light. They don't right. view... They don't view it as any way that could be ever can be compared to them. It's just like it's an entertaining bauble. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, it's it's not so much intelligence and ability. It's much more um, a a trick, mm -hmm. a parlor trick. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In, enjoyed in the moment and forgotten just as quickly until the next party occurs. But, as, as we've discussed, his dad has intentions for him. And it seems to be that he... His dad is an interesting character. Uh, I'll be curious to see if I get to spend much more time with him now, given where I'm at. But he has at least enough perspective to know that Maynard, his actual heir apparent, is an utter wastrel who will be utterly inept in trying to save what is already a dying family estate. And his one off-chance hope of warding that off, besides marrying Maynard to a wealthy family, is to give him someone more responsible, able, capable, and dedicated to serve as a shadow heir to make this dream actually possible. Because his father's dream, before all, is to maintain the Lockwood's estate in, in perpetuity. To, despite the downfall of King Tobacco, despite their fields, no, their fields and soil no longer being as productive, despite the moving of wealth and power west, he still wishes to keep this uh, ancestral dream alive, and is very able to get Hiram to buy into that this is your family heritage. This is your legacy in a way that you'll never be able to experience directly, but I'm at least going to give you the idea that you can live it too, given that you are descended from me. And basically this is sort of where we get Hiram uh, introduced to his tutor and he starts sort of learning how to run the family business. Mm -hmm. um, but And specifically to read and write, right? Yeah, specifically to read and write, you know, do math, do sort of all of the the necessary bookkeeping and understanding of um, how to to keep this plantation running. And all, <laughs> interestingly, uh, of the things that slaves are not legally allowed to know. Right. And, and it's it's not even just a practical education, too. It's strongly suggested several moments that he's almost given a classical upbringing. Yes. Even more, even more so than his dad. That his dad mm -hmm. is educated, but it's a very practical kind of education. It's a very mm -hmm. limited kind of mm -hmm. education. It's... His knowledge is being used as a degree of advertisement, as a degree of, you know, surrounding himself with the trappings of intellectualism because of his ancestry, rather than anything that's actually expressed in him. Whereas Hiram is just very well read. 
he's given a breadth of background as would be fit what his role is going to be that really puts him above at least in his own mind it's hard you always see through his own his own lens so it's never quite clear right he very much looks down on everyone around him particularly um the uh, what are they called what was the upper class called in this book i'm always losing track um, uh, the high whites. It's a, there's the low whites, and then I forget, yeah, the quality. It's the high the whites, quality. But, but they have a yeah. Specific... It's, I would say the quality is probably a good term for them. the quality. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he looks down on them heavily throughout the story. He views them as a as mu- more than he is stilted by slavery. That as a result of this system that they have yeah. set up, where they can so thoroughly remove themselves from anything that actually requires ability on their part, they have rotted. They have set idle and they have gotten idle habits and have never learned really to live on their own or be their own people. And he, I wouldn't say it's pity because there's an anger mixed in there too, but the perspectives that Hiram has on that class are fascinating to see. And it's especially like brought forth with his interactions with Maynard. Very much so. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to mention that like I think it, it's very much his tutor that... Uh, educates him in ways that that my presumption is his father did not intend i don't think his his father would have known what instructions to give in that regard i think right but i think it's like you know educate him so he can you know figure out how to run this place and you know keep the books and whatever and then the tutor for you know a variety of reasons that you know may become a little bit more clear and may not Mm -hmm. uh tried to educate hiram in a variety of things rather than just what uh, he set out to do. Yeah. Even at my one-third point, I'm already getting inklings that the tutor who is being framed early in the story of being a distant outsider that's not involved in any way, that just even maintains an expression on his face that seems to be designed to discourage him from getting involved in any particular way, <laughs> actually has interactions and connections to this community far beyond what anybody expects, almost intentionally from the presentation he's putting forward. Mm-hmm. And I'll be curious to see how more that plays out, because I was not... I, I was briefly caught off guard when we see him later interacting with the uh, Maynard's widow's slaves. We're going to we're gonna use so many descriptors to describe people in the story at times. Um, but in retrospect, it now makes a lot more sense, and I'll be curious to see more, more, more where it goes. But we, at this point, kind of when we now get into Hiram's education, correct me if I'm wrong, but we kind of sort of skip like 10 years, or they almost like yada yada, like 10 years of this guy's life. It's then we get to him being about 19, and then we suddenly spend mm-hmm. a lot more time then. Yeah, and I think it's like everything's, bo- like it's only when interesting things happen to Hiram that, that we sort of zoom back in. And presumably in this time, he's gotten a lot more competent in his studies and is really starting to play the uh manservant to maynard yeah when whenever maynard's sort of out and about so he's not getting into all sorts of trouble and also has i guess the status of having a manservant yeah and i would i I would say that this is the point at which um maynard is supposed to be kind of taking up his role as heir yeah I get the impression that Maynard is far too old at this point in the story to be the child that he is. Mm-hmm. That in any <laughs> in any more ideal scenario, he would have many years past have already been taking over this role of leading and managing this estate and planning its future. Instead, probably in like his early 20s, he's still acting like he's an early teenager. 
and has no I real mean, desire or intent to do anything more than that. If this was set in present day, he 100% would be in a frat. <laughs> yeah, that uh, is and how he basically that reads, is. yes. Like, he basically is. You know, he's getting drunk, he's going to, to watch the watch sports, and is, you know, basically hanging out with his friends and doing absolutely nothing productive. Well, but at the same time, he is, he is both, like, in a, fr- in a frat, which has certain connotations to a certain level, a certain class status attached to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he is all also um, kind of undermining that class status. He's yeah. slumming it. That's one of the ways I would say, make this a bit of a distinction from a frat, because though we all look down on frats for good and well-deserved reasons, they at least have a bit of a cultural touchstone that at least befits people as they go into them. Even a legacy well. or a family her- they, There is a legacy and family heritage that some people assign to frats. In terms of there the pe- is, but I, I think that in some ways we, uh, the three of us went to uh, North Carolina, which has a little bit more history mm-hmm. to some of their frats and and status. I would say, sure. compared to other places. But my, my point that but I'm yes. tying into this is that at least there's the potential for that. But like Sarah said, his way of expressing it is very much to associate with the low whites in a way that mm-hmm. is entirely culturally unacceptable. It is mm-hmm. the object of profound scorn among his peers. Yeah, we see no they... one from, from his peers going into the same situation. No, no. They, lit- right. they literally look down from on high in their stands and judge. That's their way well, of experiencing it. Because he got this. thrown out. Like, Be- before it, that. Before even right. that. Yeah, well, he got thrown before out because even that. of that. Right. But like, I think he got ostracized because of his foul behavior and it wasn't because he was associating with the low whites. I think he started associating with the low whites because he really likes to drink and likes horse racing and everybody else spurned him because he's just an awful human being. Yeah, I think that's a six half dozen, right? Because if you have a night out with your <laughs> with yeah. your like peers in the upper crust and you get a little too drunk and start talking about things you shouldn't, then you leave the party to go wherever. I don't know. I, I, six half dozen. And it's, it's interesting how they describe the low whites' perspective on him, too. Because the low whites are very much, I mean, just in terms of laying out how this society works, essentially, we've essentially been given four different categories of people. There are the quality, uh, who have actually all the power and all the influence and run the damn world. There are the low whites, who are allowed to think that they're important because they're white, but are kept at barely a marginal state, state above the actual task, other than just mm-hmm. having a self-confidence in knowing that they're above the tasks and can manage the tasks on behalf of the, of the, of the quality. There are the tasks, the slaves, who are, well, slaves, in our main perspective into the story. And then there's the entirely mm-hmm. outside the category section of freedmen, who are doing everything right. possible to have people ignore the fact that they're there. Because they're basically still in this game, and they're not really significantly approved about the task. And if anything, they've got less protections than they do, and so they kind of survive by being ignored. And I feel like maybe we should take a step back for a moment and mention that, and I I really like this, um, that it isn't, the slaves are not called slaves, they're called the task. The work that they're set out to do, that they're given is called the task and mm-hmm. it's in capitals mm-hmm. um and so it it gives a better feel than i think it was a wise choice of words and it gives a good feel to it, it good is not the, quite the right word but it, like a, a, 
it feels you get more of a sense of like what's going on with that choice of words rather than something that is more easily dismissed because it's familiar. Mm. Well, it it, it also like points, I think, to the gentility, Mm -hmm. the like presumed gentility of this society, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Which would not really call the people who work for them slaves. No. Right. And we see that, that they don't like to be associated with the idea of slavery. They don't, they don't want to be involved with the people who sell or deal with or catch slaves. Oh, no. That's, that's, that's shameful and below them. And it, it reflects the very much kind of Robert E. Lee view of slavery is that, oh, I'm very opposed to slavery. But I feel it's God's decision for how it plays out. And we can't let these people go off on their own and live in the world. They wouldn't know how. So it's, it's almost my sin to bear that I have these slaves. Because I'm really providing God's will and the best option that they have in the world. It's this weird mental gymnastics that goes into this process of slavery from the qualities that, no, 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 this isn't an abusive process that I'm participating in. It's one that's been forced upon me and I'm doing the best I can with, um, which was all too common among the upper crust at that period. But one thing that's interesting, we would, to tie this back to Maynard, is one thing that's interesting in terms of them describing how he acts at these uh, horse races and games is how important it is to the low whites that he does so. Because the, even that he is the wastrel member of the quality, the fact that he's willing to lower himself to their level raises them up. Which is part of the reason that the quality hate that Maynard is doing this. Is he's in some way giving them a sense of legitimacy and self-importance by even just associating with them as anything other than a distant overseer. And he's basically having a relationship be formed with the quality and the low whites where everybody else in the quality just does not want that to exist they don't they don't want to be associated they don't want to um, be shown to have the same qualities Mm -hmm. um, as as the low whites and it's interesting that like there's like such stratification it's what the society runs on it is it's so many necessary fictions to keep this society going in a way that inherently from an outsider's perspective and from you know Hiram's perspective make no sense at all but they endure yeah um one thing I do like anyway so sorry go ahead one thing I do like about what I said we jump a lot in time here but one thing I do like about the passage of time that we see is reflected not necessarily in the characters they just suddenly kind of get older it's reflected in the decay of the estate itself and the associated collapsing of the slave population uh, the population of the task and the culture of the task that's that's um running this estate and making it possible it goes from and also the collapse of horse well yeah i mean he definitely yeah <laughs> we, um, we, we see so little of horse honestly we, we get some we, get, we definitely get some moments of him he's definitely gotten older we see his hopes and dreams fall apart but and sort of the decay of Maynard and, and you know, assumes, what his standing is. That assumes what? there was a posit- there was a point for Maynard to decay from. Well, so, so there was sort of a tabula rasa, and then there, there's the descent into wastrelism. Right. There... Like, he's basically, he's kind of a shitty teenager, like young teenager, 10, 11, 12, 13, where he's just a nuisance. And then it's like, well... He could still There's hope. not be a total shit. Yeah, but uh, sorry, Horace, those dreams are deferred. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, Spencer. Yeah, intentional. Um, okay. So, so 
now that we stepped back and and sort of described the the task and and the use of language and tasks and quality and low whites, I think again that that's a really good use of language. Mm-hmm. We we sort of are in the progression of Maynard into his wastrelism and um, Horace's degenerating health and something needs to be done to maintain Lockless and at least the view of Horace. One point as well about the task as well, just to mention, I feel mm-hmm. like, I, I feel like it almost reflects a certain degree of um, assumed, uh, of taken on pride for even the slaves themselves, because I, I think the term almost just reflects their perspective on things is that they're the only ones that are actually working. They're the ones and with all accomplishing right. a task. They're the ones that are building. They're the ones that are planning. They're the ones that are making every aspect of the society possible for what otherwise would be utterly helpless individuals. So, I, not to reference the old trope about pride and slavery, but I think it, I do think it's a label that's put on them. But I think it's a one that's all, it's almost born with a certain degree of suffering pride too. Um, but I, I think that there there are some that that do have that you know suffering pride but for the most part it's just a it's more something that is forced upon them to make the quality feel better than anything else well and i think Um, it's like a a particular difference between house slaves and field slaves too right like there is there's a historic difference between um between that those sort of categories and they're they're pitted against each other in ways that are really problematic and mm-hmm. it's notable that Hiram views himself as a, this is a society that is built around as many stratifications as you can possibly divide even within groups. Oh, yes. And it's, and it's notable that I think Hiram views himself as being in some way removed from the tasked stratifications. I mean, for a large portion of the story up until, up until like where we're reaching the end of our first third, I think at times he, know, he knows that he's a slave but doesn't necessarily view himself in the same way. I think because of his family heritage, because of what he assumes is his due, he doesn't often view himself as being in the same realm as the rest of the task. Yeah, and I wonder, is it like, is it a particular absence of his mother that allows him to think that he is going to be the heir of his father? I think it's just a young, like a, his conceit. I mean, he's clearly just kind of an obnoxious middle schooler teenager, Mm -hmm. kind of. And I think it's, it's that along with you know the minor amount of recognition that he had from his father that that it's a better fantasy than the reality that that is around him mm-hmm. uh, i think it very much was a mix is a mix in between those two of where it's his own self-important view that he's on his hero's journey and at the end of the hero's journey the hero always gets his reward because that's how that story is told um so it's a, very much a sense of entitlement there while also I think, I don't know if it's intentional by his father or it's just a, natu- a, nat- a natural product of the apparatus he's been put in, but he's almost being allowed to believe that that's possible to help him fit into the task they need him to do. That I feel be... like his father knows that. Yeah. He has such a mixed view on his father and his father's intelligence. I have a difficult, I, I find it difficult to necessarily assign long-term planning to him for this, mm-hmm. but it's at least uh, below the surface. It's at least subconscious in terms of how this society's been built. And I think that just bleeds into a very classic trope of how slavery works, is that slavery can only be entirely physical for so long. It also has to be social and and, and mental and psychological in terms of just convincing you that there is either a purpose by which you are here or there is a way 
by which you can find purpose. And so, as much as he doesn't view himself as a slave, they've made him very much a slave to their will in a way he just doesn't realize any longer, which is all the more successful for their purposes. Uh, and so, as the as we progress, Maynard is then sort of uh, put into a match with one of the other families in Virginia. A, a desperate gamble to make this <laughs> what is already dying dream have even any hope of happening, because she's um, and mm-hmm. good. She's quality. But she's of a very different kind of quality than we've seen previously. Is that she's representing in some way a bit of a new wave of what could be possible. But it's not as... It has landed interest, because everybody does, but it doesn't seem to be that's the basis of its wealth, to be the wealthiest family in Virginia. It's much more it seems mercantile in terms of its source and power. And the other impression that I got is that, you know, she's older and... Um, I almost got the impression, like, you know, maybe she was sort of married before... Um, like not the uh, pristine southern belle. She, she's certainly profoundly more mature than almost any other white character we've seen in this story. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether that is reflective of age or experience or upbringing or just the nature of her character, I don't know enough to say at this point, but she's very distinct from anybody else. And I like how utterly intimidated uh, Hiram is by that. He doesn't even, mm-hmm. My point in the story, he doesn't even want to be in the same room as her, because he views her as being this Machiavellian kind of planner, spider-with-the-strings kind of character. Because he doesn't yeah. have as easy of a read on her as he does on everybody else. But I also get the sense that Maynard is just uninterested in her. <laughs> he never interacts for... with her. Hmm? He never interacts with her from what we even see. No, right. he is and supposed so... to marry her, and that is the extent of their relationship. They are right. promised. And... There sort of seems to be some sort of uh, subtext as to why he's so uninterested beyond that she seems to be a little bit older and, and, I don't know, maybe she requires some effort in terms of his conversational ability that he just doesn't have. Well, except that he doesn't seem to be interested in women who are not there for his physical pleasure at all. Yeah, I mean, it, he is not willing to give up the childish things and become an adult. And she's very much a representative of that, of taking on responsibility that he's entirely unwilling to do. And as we now start to come back around to our experience of diving into the goose, um, yes. it's one of the things that kills him. Uh, yep. Depending mm-hmm. on how we choose to interpret this falling into the goose moment. Because we have Drunk driving? Uh, I mean... We, let's say what we know and let's say what we don't know. <laughs> we know that after going to a brothel and with seemingly a girl in the back with Maynard, um, their, wa- their ox-drawn wagon goes into the River Goose. And in the process, Maynard drowns, Hiram survives. Mm-hmm. Those are the literal events we know. And at least at one-third of the story, do we know really that much more no, I would also like to point out in your description, Spencer, and also it is verified book. by my own knowledge, um, we know that Maynard drowns and Hiram survives, but there was a third person on the bridge <laughs> that nobody cares attention. about. <laughs> yeah. Yep. She's literally given an offhand mention of, didn't see the girl, oh well. Must have been on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What on earth? She, she was a low white, probably. No no further note is needed. Um, and we also get what... Or she we wasn't. Get, or she was... She was... She, I mean, she was, she was described as being um, 
oh, what's the they use a they use a very uncomfortable word to describe even what she is. But she, she's basically a prostitute that he picked up at. Um, yes, I. My only point is that, and I can't remember the word that is used to describe this, is that there are a lot of attractive black women in slavery who are sold into. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was, I was assumption on part that she even she's even white. I do not know that. And I don't. I don't remember. I don't. I. I honestly don't remember. But. I had that sense as well, and I think it's because he went there, and the other uh, instances that that we will eventually sort of get to is it seems like he would have had the status to not have to go there, or maybe his father would have, like, looked down on it, but, like, I sort of imagine that uh, Sophie or Sophia's uh, experience is not a singular one. Yeah, but this would be all the more example of why uh, Maynard is just flaunting societal values. If he's willing to just even be riding around publicly with a black woman, that would be in no way in keeping with what the values of his of his quality and his time are. But, but not Man- quite Maynard. so publicly to go down the main road. Yeah, right. Um, Which is but- how they get to the River Goose. And somehow end up in the river, which is never explained. They, they're just—they were—they were going towards a bridge, the same bridge that he seemingly vaguely remembers his mother last walking down when he last saw her. And then they are in a river, and they are drowning. And there are a lot of—you can interpret them literally, or interpret them as just you know drowning visions that uh, Hiram seems to have of his mother and blue lights and seemingly escaping and going beyond and being transported elsewhere. And symbolically and literally leaving his anchor of a brother behind. And the next thing you know, he's, he's in the reeds. Of, he's in the reeds. He's sort of on the shore. He's wandering around. He's sort of, it, it's easy to interpret this as he's losing consciousness and he's sort of in and out of consciousness and in and out of being able to remember what happened after a near-death experience. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and he's but a- there are overtones of something happened. There are overtones of magic that are definitely coming into this. Um, of something else in the world that is reaching down to connect with him in this moment. Um, mm-hmm. However it plays out, he is found by the manservant of this, uh, now Maynard's winner, uh, apparently. That's at least what's repeated often and makes him uncomfortable. Sort of widow to be. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's dead. Um, and well, he but they brought... were never actually married. Right. God, how, what word would we use to describe that now? Uh, X. Affianced. Well, that's why I said wid- widow to be, because <laughs> yeah. there, there isn't like Wid- a... Widow to be is like you're planning on killing him next chapter. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He's he's found by that guy, whose name escapes me. That's why I keep on using other various descriptors to describe oh. this guy. Her name is Corinne. That's not who I'm saying. The, her man's No, the, the servant, right, of, servant. The, of, of Corinne. Yes. Yeah. Is it Henry? It starts with an H. It does. A lot of H names in this, aren't there? Mm-hmm. Uh, Henry seems to be reasonable. Okay. Uh, but found by that guy, and then we go through a multi-day process of him trying to come back, of where he spends days in a kind of mixed coma slash out-of-body experience, it seems, uh, until he eventually recovers. And this is one of the moments we start to connect him more so with the character described before, but I don't waste much time with. Um, is it Sophie or Sophia? Sophia. So- or, well, so it's both. So it's Sophie, and she's often called Sophie. Gotcha. Um, and I think the manservant is Hawkins. Hawkins. Oh, that's that right. Yeah. Um, and what do I want to say about the relationship? What, what do I want to say about Sophie Sophia? Because she, she has also a very 
and almost similar to Hiram, a role in the society that doesn't place her in the usual role in the usual annals of the task. Yeah, this gets to a very sort of weird part of the novel that I get why it's there, but I don't like. Uh, what, in terms of, in terms of the relationship she has, well, in terms of Hiram's like attitude towards her. No, oh, well, she calls him out on it, which I liked eventually once we get there. Yeah, um, but he's sort of like. He's tasked with bringing her to uh, meet Nathaniel the brother, Walker, I think. Brother, brother. or brother-in-law of, of uh, Hiram's father. Yeah, um, I think it's brother. And, yeah. And he basically just... And she's kind of, like, not interested in talking to her driver, and he falls in love with her. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I think even from the beginning, it is pretty clear that she is not interested in talking to him because she can't be interested in talking to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there definitely is some of that. Um, I think she's also put off that she reads in him quite accurately, I would say. She calls him out on lighter. That he is, his entitlement is also starting to apply to her. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And she's sort of old enough to not be in the same, like... Or, or is a little bit more uh, wise to the world in ways that he's not. Well, but what I think comes out later is that, and I can't remember where it exactly comes out, but she's not older than she than he is. It's uh, just yes. that the the system in which she is trapped, well, in which in which they're all trapped, but in the particular in the particulars of her experience of the system is that she is required to be older. Mm. Yeah, and I think I think it's also fair to say that everyone comes across as being older than Hiram yes. at various times, that, and older than they are. Yeah, they've been aged by the world, and particularly of her experiences of where she's essentially a the private mistress of a wealthy landowner, in a way that he, in a way, in a way that Nathaniel probably views as giving her a position of luxury, a position of care, a position of respect, but from her perspective, it's a position of profound threat and vulnerability mm-hmm. that. She is go- that she knows that with respect to this role, she can't be hidden, that she can't hide, and she's going to be used up and abused and cast aside, and it's only a matter of time. And it's interesting that he is keeping her at his brother's house. <laughs> yeah. And not as so many of these relationships are, you know, done within the household, essentially, but that she is brought to... Mm-hmm. The household that she changes into sort of the clothes of a courtesan it's, before yeah. going into the house. Like, this is a very particular relationship. It's awesome. And I think it's unclear, like, how, like, what status, I guess, Nathaniel has. Because it's clear that he's yeah. of the family, probably like a younger brother that didn't really inherit. Um, so is probably maybe more technically quality, but has some sort of other business. So, like, maybe doesn't own many slaves mm-hmm. and doesn't have the same god i don't want to call it opportunity but um, <laughs> yeah. resources yeah but it's also clear that he likes the idea of this woman coming to him not being a part of the household and, yeah and i think that really bleeds into what her role was before she ever got assigned to his brother's estate yes of where she was the personal maidservant of Nathaniel's late wife for years before, you know, uh, she and before the late wife and Nathaniel ever met. Mm-hmm. From like that, as she describes it, from that early moments of when they were children, when they still could believe the fiction that they were actually friends. 
Mm-hmm. And, and she this still is how it frequently happened, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a great way of instilling loyalty if you raise people up together in this particular mm-hmm. matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the point that she's, though even recognizing that it's profoundly manipulative, she still views the uh, her friend and you know Nathaniel's late wife as in only very warm, in only a very warm way. She views her as very much what was good in life and the world. Now that she's absent, she sees a lot more of the pro- a lot more of the pain. Well, that is the quote-unquote benefit of dying young. Eh, but yeah, it. Because she has that history, it almost feels like that she's being wrapped up in the role of his ex-wife in terms of how she's presented and what role she plays in his life. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the other thing that I just realized, pretty much nobody that we are interacting with has both parents for long stretches of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, you know, I, it's probably more fitting than not for the era. We're getting through an era, well... And particularly it's women that are dying early, where infant mortality is still far and away the primary cause of death of women. Well, so it, uh, a lot of women dying or being sent away, uh, or not present, but a lot of uh, men dying or being sent away among the tasked. Sure. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I, for example, Tina's hum- husband. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, I mean, particularly for, it's, it's a difference. For the quality, it's the women dying presumably in childbirth, mm-hmm. uh, and, the, mm-hmm. and, the, and the men endure as the possessors of the estate. For the task, it's men being sent off because they're productive and can be sold for a higher value, and then leaving families behind as a result. Yes. But um, I feel like we're building up to what's going to be now the climax of this section. In terms Let's of do the, it. <laughs> in terms of the relationship that uh, Hiram has with Sophie and how that plays out. Yes. Of where... We've, uh, we've mentioned offhand the idea that there is a free town with a George... Is it a George Miller? Or am I just thinking of the director? Um, I don't think George, it is George remember. Miller, but I don't yeah. remember what his name is to tell you that. Um, I will look quickly. But so the other thing that we have... Uh, it's George Parks. Parks. Um, so the other thing that we have is uh, Corinne basically saying, like, all right, I know I was going to marry and that was going to save the uh, Lockless estate. Um, <laughs> Manor died. Let's kind of just continue with that and yeah. I, I guess marry uh, Horace. No. Well, maybe. I can't say. I don't know. We'll see how it plays out. She, she at very least is viewing as that I want this marriage to have been as if it occurred and as a result everything that was his is now mine. As yeah, this is a, a, a very, very kind of traditional, Our they were Howell. betrothed mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. therefore um, yes. she is a part of the family. And, and has certain rights. And she's marketing this hard. <laughs> yes. To yes. And he's in. He's buying in. It's, you know. Oh, well, I mean, his the loss of his only son and heir and this woman who is so obliging and considerate and was supposed to be mm-hmm. married to his son anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Hiram, it seems, has sort of figured out, decided, or, well, that his opportunity to for anything is coming to a close with Corinne taking over the Lockless estate. Mm-hmm. Yes. And this is sort of coupled with his interactions with Sophie and what happens with Nathaniel Walker. And so this is all coming to a head in his 
I don't know, 19 maybe year old brain as a, all right, well, we have to escape. There's also, also the symbolic moment of kind of Maynard's funeral when all the rest of the family comes up. And he kind of has one of the first mm, moments yeah. he's had in years of where he actually associates with the tasks on an equal level or even just yes. a personal level. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he goes down to join their celebrations over Christmas. Right. Which gives him and a connection when, back when he and, and Sophie sort of solidify any sort of relationship they might have. Yeah. It, it's a kind of relationship, clearly not the one that he wants, that um, she makes very clear early on. Um, but she, as a result of whatever relationship they're forming, confides in him that she can't do this anymore, that she needs to be out, that she wants to be out. And he, in all the pride that a 19-year-old can muster, decides he's going to save her and exit himself in the process from what he views as a possible negative lesson control light. I mean, he's seeing his you know hero's journey fall apart before him now that he's never going to be the one to run the Lockless Estate the way he actually kind of dreamed he would. And so he's decided to exit the board and take Sophie with him. And, and so he goes to Georgie. Because he's heard rumors that George is connected with this kind of mythical underground, which rather than being Underground Railroad, is this kind of tasked community in the swamp that is separate and apart from the rest of the world and runs and runs for themselves in a way that's very purposefully vague. And well, and I, I think that we can unvagify that in ways that are, are not... Are not... Spoilery. Spoilery is that there is an underground, that mm-hmm. there is the Underground Railroad, um, but there is also, and this is like true to history, that there is a free community in many of in 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 many of these societies um, that has has mostly bought their way out, and Georgie falls into that category. And it's inter- mm-hmm. it's interesting too that Georgie is you know an old member of this community, and we do not meet very many of them. With Georgie almost being in some ways a representative of a bit of a bygone era, because depending mm-hmm. on the timing of this. Uh, Georgie's role in being able to buy his way out of slavery would no longer be legal. That I'm, if this yes. is po- if this is post Nat Turner's rebellion, that has been outlawed by state law as even an option now. So his position is almost impossible in present day. It's almost implied in the story to kind of be so so unique that no one can really follow him into it. Um, and it's also a position that's under profound threat, as he tells people that though he is kind of out of the game. It means that he is now subject to every. He's subject to anyone's whims. He can be killed in some ways, a lot more easily than a member of the task could, because they're still property and still valuable to somebody in a way that he isn't. So he has to find ways to still make himself valuable. And so he's one of the one main people that keeps poo-pooing these stories about the underground whenever he hears them, despite the fact everyone says that he's the main connection to it. Uh, and he immediately dismisses rumors of large numbers of people fleeing, and he. Could, repeatedly repeats to everyone that's willing to listen that your only way of surviving is trying to find a way to make this work. That's the or only hope he gives his, you. Or to follow his own path and buy your way out. Assuming it's even right. still possible, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, which which Hiram is like, well, I can't do that, so... <laughs> no, not an option. Right. Yeah. I need to leave this second now. Yeah. <laughs> and how many times I'm did Georgie make just you say, help me. How many times did Georgie just say no? And Hiram just goes, nope, you're still doing it. I'm, I'm. Well, so I think that at least my reading was less that more that Georgie wanted to make sure that he was serious rather than trying to warn him off. I don't know. And as we're all suggesting, and presumably our readers have, you know, re- listeners have read this, <laughs> um, Georgie sells him out. 
and yes. when he tells him to be at a set place at a set time to you know go to the underground, in reality he's called in the low whites um, to arrest him as a, as a runaway slave. The hounds, yes. In that moment, I viewed what he did with a profound degree of regret. Um, that he almost it almost as if he felt that he was being forced into a corner, and that was the only way that he could survive was by doing this to protect his very unique position. Mm-hmm. But BJ, did you read it differently in terms of why Georgie did as he did? You guys, um, you both have read more than I have, so you may have an advantage there. I just said I guess I don't ascribe that m- as much honor to Georgie as I don't necessarily call it honor. I just call it uh, or caring or anything else. Not even just necessarily that. It's just that he has det- the he Georgie is the ultimate survivor, and that he is going to do what is necessary. And if that means, out of necessity, selling your fool ass down the river, he's going to do that because you've put him in an impossible situation with respect to it. But, who knows? Yeah, yeah and I, I mean, would I say that, it... like, in my reading, in this part of the story, and I think I can, I can say this, it doesn't really matter, um, that I read, and even in retrospect read, like, Georgie really likes Hiram. Mm-hmm. And is really trying to protect him, mm-hmm. but of course to has to, has, yeah, has to protect himself in the situation above, above all else. And so, what's interesting is that I was much more sympathetic to Georgie in this moment, but you know, perhaps to the detriment of the narrative, Georgie becomes more of a cipher figure going forward. Yeah, I pictured that was eventually going to be the case. I, I. You know, it, it's obviously a very cruel thing that he did, but I understood it, at least in mm-hmm. this given moment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. As self-interested, as callous as you can interpret it to be, I interpreted a lot of those moments when he's talking about this was, I was trying to save you. That I was trying to get you to read between the lines that this was not an option. And effectively, you forced my hand because I wasn't going to risk myself for you. Yes. So, I, th- I guess I read it more as a, this is how you have to want it but you shouldn't be coming to me about this. And so there's like a, you know, not less so cautioning him not to do it, but sort of like this is the type of desire you need to be able to get out of the position that you're in. Which is interesting. Sorry, Spencer, I was just going to say, like, I think that that is the position of the book. I don't think that Mm -hmm. is the position of Georgie. I almost interpret that as the position that Hiram had in that given moment. Is that feeling like he that his persistence well, Hiram was is the book in this yes, book, yeah, right? That, like, yeah, that, that, that Hiram interpreted their interaction in that light, whereas what was actually happening was more Georgie's perspective of "No, dear God, go away, walk away while you still can." Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, but regardless, it plays out that they get caught. They get sent to what is that place that's on the border of the realm called? That house that they're kept, that, uh, well, jail that they're kept in. It's like Rykum's Jail or something like that? R- isn't it, Ry- is exactly. it Ryman? Is it, Ryland? Hmm. Ryland. 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 It's Ryland's Hounds. I don't know if it's Ryland Jail as well. But um, they're essentially running it. Yeah, they're essentially running this jail, capturing, you know, runaway slaves, and there's, they're, Basically, him and Sophie and and I think one other uh, runaway slave are sort of all there and being held there for a while. And that's kind of where we end our first part of this book. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, I'm curious to ask you guys. I think we've all 
enjoyed this book quite a bit. Uh, if you can put it to words, what about this first third of this book you've liked so much? What would you say? Um, I would say, you know, I've talked about some of the ways in which this this book embodies a kind of buildings for men and, and something like that. But it it is an interesting mashup of of that and a kind of like traditional slave narrative, but it is fictionalized and personalized in a way that I find really compelling. And so I love the voice of Hiram. Mm-hmm. Um, I love at this point, the hint that we have gotten that there is perhaps something supernatural going on. Um, but I also love, and I think this is the twist on kind of, if you were going to do a sort of slave narrative or some, or, or even a, a historical fiction based on a slave narrative, Hiram is much more personal to me in this narrative. Mm-hmm. He is much more flawed. He is much more interesting mm-hmm. than, than other kind of historically Examples, accurate yeah. examples of, not that this isn't historically accurate, but other, um, I guess, period examples of, of what this voice might be. I think that's a very accurate read. Hiram comes across more than a lot of the other characters as being a very modern character mm-hmm. Uh, put, mm-hmm. put, in, put into an historical setting. Yeah, um, I find that. And I also really like the interactions that every community has within themselves and between uh, strata and how that's depicted and and i get us i really get a feel and a sense for it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and i would did just before spencer i would i think it would be interesting have either of you read octavia butler's kindred no it has been recommended to me but i've not read it I i think i just bought it on audible or kindle like i it's like legit on my reading list like coming up no i mean it's an extraordinary book it is it it, it, it's fascinating um but it deals with and and the comment that hiram is perhaps like a more modern view in this world so in in kindred a modern woman from i believe the 1970s it might be 80s whatever the the present of the book is gets transported back to the antebellum antebellum south um, Mm -hmm. with all the things you might imagine happen in that situation. But it has, I I think these two books would be interesting to read together um, because of the narrator's voice and the, the kind of reading of the situation that emerges from there. Mm -hmm. Um, And they kind of, they coalesce at some point in ways that are particularly interesting. Um, so BJ, I'm super excited for you um, to read slash listen to this book uh, because I think I think yeah. it's going to be super interesting for you, particularly in this moment. Um, I think that, that this might be a fun, like our next, maybe our next novel, um, and maybe we'll do like a couple episodes of, of short stories, but this be our next novel given that you know the similarities that you're talking about i think that would be super cool yeah i think i think we're reserved for at least one episode of stephen king before we move on to the next, <laughs> next one right, that's why i said a couple episodes of short stories in between yeah because novels take us a little time to read it's interesting how this particular style of putting a more modern character in a more historical setting work because it can be done in two different ways it can be done in like the classic King, uh, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, of where you are literally taking a more modern character and putting putting him in a historical setting, or which is what Kindred of, does. Yes. Yes. 
<laughs> or uh, in terms of television shows, have you guys seen Outlander? It's another show that more recently. Yes, I have it. both seen and read Outlander. <laughs> did, I did not actually realize it was a book series. Oh, nice. oh my gosh, it was a book series first, yes. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, but it's interesting to see the... So I, I almost call this version subversive in the sense that it's yes. not purporting to do that. It is purporting mm-hmm. to be, this is a character that is born and raised and from this world. But as mm-hmm. if I'm taking the psychology and experience and perspective of a modern character and inserting it into that historical person without them realizing it. Mm-hmm. And then playing it out in that way. Which, I'll be curious to see where this goes with it. Because that gives you a lot of <laughs> more indirect ways of getting the same point across. And it gives the, the narrator a lot more insight into what's happening and allows for, I think, a richer description of what we want, what I am enjoying about this book. Yeah. It, this is not is like all a, the other interactions. Yeah, this is not like a Frederick Douglass of, mm-hmm. I am, I have particular insights given my historical moment. Mm-hmm. We are allowing, as we have been discussing, we are allowing the modern to bleed into what would have been right. a historical it, insight. And it allows a essayist writer for the New York Times and the Atlantic to provide a certain degree of modern commentary on an historical mm-hmm. setting and thing through the perspective and lens of a character at the time. And interestingly, that is like entirely facilitated by the fact that um, this character, this character's father is white. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it gives him a cross. It gives him a bit of an unstuck in time and unstuck in world effect to allow yes. you to do more with him. Yes. Yep. Um, Which we will continue seeing how that plays out in the next section. So we'll probably do the next third. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not exactly sure where that's going to end up, but it might be an easy Roman numeral. Um, (laughs) We do have three sets of Roman numerals here, so hopefully... Oh, do we? Are you looking at the... I I believe this is a three-part book. Table of Contents. Um, I I... that seems like it'll, it'll break down well, and uh, I look forward to talking with both of you about it. Um, and if you got, if our listeners have any questions, comments, or suggestions, uh, our main website is mangumtalks.com. That has all of the podcasts associated with our channel. Um, there is a Mangum Reads Facebook page that will have all of our Mangum Reads and Mangum Reads related content. Um, and uh yeah so we read all the comments there as well as the uh anything that comes in through the website mangum talks if you click contact us in the upper right hand corner um but as always it's been a lot of fun y'all and i look forward to talking to the next part till then guys bye guys